Hi, I'm Cam Cole, the founder and principal regulator at The Cosmetic Regulator. What I love about beauty is the innovation that products, brands and people bring to the industry. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Hi, and welcome to Beauty Is Your Business. I'm your host, Jessica Quick, and today I am buzzing about what I'm calling MOCRA 2.0 and other regulatory issues. I know this is the less glamorous side of beauty, but such an important topic. And I am so excited to be speaking today with Cam. Hi, Cam. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, when Cam and I first started talking, Cam is based in the UK, we definitely started delving into MOCRA and the changes that have happened since the end of the year. And so we wanted to spend some time really stepping through what those changes look like. But before we jump into that, I'd love to understand, Cam, I don't think I've actually ever fully gotten your backstory. Well, I accidentally fell into the regulatory space. I was looking for a role post-study, so my background is in law and psychology, but I was always a huge lover of the beauty industry. I worked at a law firm and I hated it. I just found it so boring and I knew that I just didn't see myself doing a role like that for the next 40, 50 years of my life. So I sort of went back to the drawing board and a role popped up in regulatory. And I thought, okay, so it's working on product and it's working with the law. So I get to actually apply what the law is and what those regulations are to product. The product at that time was farming disinfectants. So not the beauty industry. It's a very different, very niche. Not glamorous. Not glamorous at all. So I worked at that company for a year and a half. And I learned so much about the background on chemical regulation, which then led me to my next role, which was where I was introduced to beauty. So I spent the bulk of my career at a company called Reckitt or Reckitt Benkiser or RB. It's known by various different names. And I spent four years there working on brands such as Dettol, which is Lysol in the US, Shoal, Clearasil. E45 and Veet. So there were a lot of personal care brands. A lot of my experience comes from working on these huge global brands. So new product development, existing product development. So making product improvements and then obviously continued compliance as well. So I spent a lot of my time there working across these various roles and various brands Sometimes both roles at the same time, which is pretty hectic, especially during COVID. But I learned so much there. I then moved on to a retailer. So a globally known retailer, the Hook Group, which is huge in terms of e-commerce. And I was working on their ingenuity pillar where I was client facing and looking after everything beauty clients. So I worked with some amazing brands there, Neil's Yard, Anastasia Beverly Hills, And it was a real learning curve from the retailer side because I didn't have that in my 
experience up until that point I was always working from a manufacturer point of view so getting that more well-rounded experience from a retailer then moved back to brand because I really missed working on product and I was the regulatory manager at Moulton Brown looking after everything globally so Moulton Brown is a luxury beauty brand I'm sure many of you will have seen the products use the products within hotels but also it's a great product if you're looking to buy a gift for your mum, for example. So I spent some time there before deciding to go solo. So during my time at Reckitt, when I had so much going on, I didn't necessarily set out to start a consultancy. I wanted to set up an Instagram page to actually educate consumers on how products are regulated because... If you remember, this was the height of clean beauty and what did it mean? And there was a lot of content happening around the skincare and skinstagram, as it was known and probably still is. And I thought, let me just start sharing some educational content. And that is how my journey started. So that was almost four years ago now, which sounds crazy. And then a couple of years of posting content led to consulting And I decided at the end of last year that I wanted to start 2024 on my own and and give consulting a real go. So that's how I have ended up to where I am today. It isn't the most straightforward path, but I don't feel like anyone's career ever is. But you learn so much along the way that things obviously happen for a reason. And I'm here because of the journey that I've had over the last almost eight years now. I love that you started really kind of in, I'm going to call it the education space of helping to educate consumers on really what it means for regulations on products. While you were doing that, what would you say were the one or two biggest confusing points for consumers when it comes to beauty brands and beauty products? What was it that they really didn't understand about the regulatory piece of it? I don't think consumers really understood the regulatory piece just as a whole, that it was even something that was happening, because there is a lot of fear mongering around chemicals and clean beauty being the ultimate goal that every brand should attain to be. But then also there was a lot of fear mongering around individual ingredients, as well as obviously groups of chemicals. And I felt like all of that really led to consumers not trusting brands. And brands were also basically, they felt like they had to go down the clean beauty route where they were focusing on single ingredients that were not in their products. So free from claims, such as free from aluminium or free from phthalates. So that seemed like it was the trend a couple of years ago. But then you see huge brands like Decium and The Ordinary, which take a science first approach and market from a science first approach, which for me was just such a refreshing take on marketing rather than focusing on what your product doesn't have in there, whether it's clean, whether it's meeting retailer standards. So I feel like consumers really didn't understand that there was so much work behind what actually goes into launching a safe and compliant product. And I hope now they do know that there is a lot of regulation around what you can have in your product, what you can't have in your product, and the necessarily steps that brands have to go through before launching a product. Well, and I feel like it's really important here to call out that 
it's actually very regulated in the EU and the UK, which is where you sit, obviously helping American-based brands going that way, but also the other way, UK and EU brands coming into the US. It's very regulated there. There's a lot of clear guidelines on what we can say when it comes to claims, things like we can't actually say free of in that part of the world. But what I always find interesting is here in the US, I almost feel like consumers have too much trust in what is actually regulated. And I think they're usually surprised at how little regulation there really is when it comes to the types of ingredients that can be in product. There's only a limited amount that are not allowed. And I know that that is in the works and changing, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But that's always an interesting point for me in that education space is you do as a consumer in the US need to do some due diligence. And the brands, I'm loving that the brands are putting out more information and more clinical studies and more authoritarian voices using real key experts in the space that help the consumers understand what that ingredient really does and then the safety and what clean means and all of that. So we have a lot of work to do, but I love that you're out here already helping put content out that's reliable and important because the consumer in the U.S. does have a lot of homework to do on their own. Yes, definitely. And I feel consumers in the U.S. are almost more distrustful because they know that the U.S. regulations are perhaps not as tight or as strict as the EU regulations. But each state, they have their own way of regulating cosmetics as well. So we have federal and then we have state level regulations, which differ state to state. So if you're a brand trying to launch in the US, not only do you have to look at the federal, you also have to consider all of the state regulations, which is a huge task to do for any brand, let alone a small indie brand that is just about to launch with maybe one or two people working at the brand. So there is a lot of work to be done in terms of launching the business, but then how do you actually communicate what your product is, what your brand is, who you are as an owner to customers that perhaps are not trustful of just brands that have launched in the US. I do often see a lot of US brands claiming our products comply to EU with the misunderstanding almost that EU is better. And yes, EU's regulations are seen as global gold standard, but it's almost a faux claim because a lot of the EU restricted and prohibited substances are substances that you would never put into a cosmetic product anyway. So there is a bit of a balancing approach that needs to be taken just from the consumer's point of view. And I think like that education piece is really important because consumers are looking into things more. They are way more clued up than they used to be. They have questions. They want to really buy into not just the product, but the brand, the founders, the story. And that's how so many US brands have actually become way more successful than some of the UK EU brands. And then they come over to the UK EU and replicate that success, which is amazing to see because innovation drives product, drives customers, drives sales. It's great to see. So when a brand is getting started, and especially whether they're based in the UK EU or here in the US, and they are, you know, as you said, they're thinking what federally, what do I have to actually adhere to? And then statewide, 
I've heard California, obviously the strongest, there's more laws coming into California. Is your recommendation that they start with kind of the strictest? Do they start and look at EU and really formulate towards EU knowing that it will satisfy the US? Or is it really based on every brand individually what they want to do? I would say it's both. My recommendation before I see a formulation is formulate to EU and then let's see where you want to launch in the US. Are there any particular states that you want to launch in, such as California? But generally speaking, if you can formulate to EU and it's EU compliant, you should be okay to sell in most states in the United States. There are some additional state regulations, such as the 1,4-dioxane regulation in New York, the new phthalates regulation within Washington, But if those are states that you're not focusing on and you don't actually ship there from your website, maybe those could be looked at as a second priority. But if you formulate to EU, you should be okay for the most part for the US. Let's dive into some of these. Last year, we actually, we touched on Mocha as well on this show. And I get a lot of outreach from people talking about Mocha. I've seen a lot of webinars happening because Where we last left off, by the end of 2023, manufacturers were supposed to have gone onto the Mocha site and to have listed their company. And then some things have changed since then. So walk us through where we are today and what has changed and what the new expectation or timelines look like for manufacturers and for brands. The 29th of December 2023 is the key date for all things Mokra and the date that all brands and manufacturers that are selling in the US and formulating products for the US were supposed to comply by and do all of their listings in the Mokra platform, which is called FDA Cosmetics Direct. However, the FDA didn't actually open that platform until I think it was the week before Christmas which obviously does not leave any time for brands to get organized and notify everything. And we're talking every single cosmetic product sold in the US. So to avoid any system crashes and to ensure that everybody has time to actually not only upload their product listings, but for manufacturers to complete their facility registration as well, The FDA published an announcement to say that they would not be enforcing that section of the MOCRA regulation until the 1st of July 2024, which effectively gives brands and manufacturers an additional six months to comply, to complete the listings, to complete the facility registrations. I think one key point on the listings and facility registrations is that until your manufacturing facility has registered and added you as a brand to their listing, you cannot start to complete and submit your product listings because you need information from your manufacturer before you're able to do that. So it's really key to have that additional time and really work through all of the data on your products, who's making them, who is actually classed as a facility and who needs to register. So that's where things were left I guess, at the end of last year. But that's not to say that you don't have other obligations as a brand as of the 29th of December 2023. And I feel like maybe that's something that has gone missing in all of the announcements. So even though you have this additional six months where the FDA have said, we won't enforce this, 
they still will enforce the other elements of the regulation, which did have a compliance date of the 29th of December 2023. So that had three key areas, adverse events reporting, safety substantiation, and the US responsible person information on the label. And I can go into those in a little bit more detail. Yeah, let's step through. Sure. So adverse events reporting is ensuring that if you have a serious adverse event reported to you as a brand, as a brand, you have that responsibility to report that to the FDA within 15 business days. And the responsibility lies on the US responsible person to actually do that. And I'll go into the responsible person in a little while. But all brands should be having a process in place whereby they are recording adverse and serious adverse events, managing the records, storing their records appropriately, and making sure that the communications with FDA, if they are required for any reason, they're actually keeping a record of those as well, because these records can be requested at an FDA inspection, which can happen at any time. The next element, which is enforced from the 29th of December 2023, is safety substantiation. So this is to confirm that your cosmetic product is safe to be sold. So this is where a toxicologist will essentially check the interactions of each ingredient and make sure that it is still a safe product for its intended use. And that usually is satisfied by having a UK European cosmetic safety report. But MOCRA does not stipulate that is what you need to have. So there are a number of different ways that brands are able to do this. But if you already have that UK EU safety report, you're likely to have met that obligation in the US under MOCRA already. Unless, of course, the FDA comes out with some more guidance in the future. But at present, that is all the information we have. And then the labeling of the US responsible person. So this is something that definitely threw a lot of people into a bit of a spin because everyone thought, well, I need to update my label now to include all of the US responsible person information. But the chances are that you actually already have that on there are very high. So a responsible person under MOCRA is a manufacturer, a distributor, or a packer. If you're a brand who does not manufacture their own products, you're likely to be a distributor. Obviously, if you are a brand that does manufacture your own products, you're a manufacturer. And it's highly likely you already have your brand name and contact information on your label. If you do, then you have already met that requirement for MOCRA. The one key element of label information is that it does need to be either a domestic address or a domestic phone number or electronic information. So a website or an email. So another, I guess, myth that I have have seen is that you need to have a US-based responsible person. You do not. A US-based responsible person is not required and it's not stated anywhere in MOCRA. You could be a brand in the UK, for example, selling into the US. And as long as you have electronic contact information on your label, you comply with that requirement. The reason we need that contact information on there links with the first point, you need to be able to receive adverse events information. So if consumers have any issues with the product, so that's why you need to have that information on the label. So it is all connected in a way and it does all make sense, but definitely having the USRP information on your label, double check, but it's very likely that you already have it on there. So then as a brand, being able to meet these requirements are most brands are you seeing they're reaching out 
to their legal teams? Are they reaching out to regulatory teams? How are brands going about, now that they know the information, making sure that they're adhering to it or finding that right RP? So most brands will reach out to their legal team. And if they're already working with a cosmetic consultancy or a regulatory consultancy, they will likely ask them. I've had clients asking me, like, can you just confirm that this is the US responsible person? We think we know who it is, but can you just confirm that makes sense with the definition? Because it does need to be somebody that is either, as I said, manufacturer, distributor or packer. Unfortunately, unlike the EU and UK, that US responsible person role cannot be mandated to a third party. So a consultancy would not ever be able to be your US responsible person, whereas in the UK and Europe, you can legally mandate that role out to a consultant. But unfortunately, in the US, that isn't possible. So it is always going to be the brand or the manufacturer. I've never seen an example where it's the packer, but obviously it can happen. So it's really important that brands are reaching out to their legal teams or their consultancy company that they're working with to confirm those points. As I said, it's highly likely you are already compliant and your label doesn't need an update. So please don't rush to update all of your labels as it's likely you'll have all that information on there already. But if it wasn't, they found that it was not actually there. Were they supposed to have those labels updated and in market by December 29th? Or is there a grace period in which to have the updated correct information? So the compliance date is the 29th of December, 2023. One element of MOCRA that they don't really explain is whether that date means the manufacture date or the selling date. In the EU, when anything is published in terms of a regulatory update, we always get one date as a manufacturing deadline, i.e. you cannot produce after this date, and one date as a selling deadline, i.e. it has to be off the shelf by this date. But under MOCRA, we don't have that distinction. So I think if you are looking to update your labels and they haven't been updated yet and they need to be, update them as soon as possible, get those labels into manufacture as soon as possible. Given the tight turnaround for MOCRA, like don't forget this this regulation was published 29th of December 2022. There's only been one year where the FDA needs to understand what their new enforcement authorities will be and the brands need to understand what their new obligations are. So it's very much a learning curve. And I really hope that the FDA take a pragmatic approach when they do come to carrying out enforcement and inspections. I want to circle back to the comment you had made earlier about the extension to July 1, 2024, and that, in fact, the manufacturers need to have their information uploaded first because brands require that for them to be able to upload. So in this situation that we're in, what's the recommendation for brands? Are they following up constantly with manufacturers to make sure? Are they putting pressure on their manufacturers to make sure that they are uploading and adhering so that they have the appropriate time? Because it feels like manufacturers, if they do you know, take their time or if they do wait, the brand is then going to have to scramble at the very end. So recommendations or how are you advising your clients in as a brand in having the ability to get this uploaded, knowing that they're the tail from the manufacturing side? Exactly. And I think the key point here is making sure that you have really good communications with your suppliers, your manufacturers, any facility that is involved with touching the formulation of the product would need to 
register as a facility. So the key thing here is to have that communication with them as soon as possible if you haven't already reached out to them already. Obviously, some manufacturers will probably have reached out to the brand already and asked them for their information that they require. So as a brand, you need to let your manufacturing facility know who your USRP is, the types of products that you are selling, which obviously they are manufacturing. Obviously, the two should match up. So in terms of what I tell brands that are, they come to me and they say, where do I start? The first thing to do is map out all of the products that you are selling in the US, because not all brands sell all their products in the US for marketing sales reasons. So map out what you have in the US, identify who your responsible person is, have a look at the label, have a look at the supply chain, look at who your responsible person is, look at who is actually making that formula. And if anybody else is maybe repacking that into a, into a different bottle, they may be a facility as well. You need to map all of that out onto a very simple Excel tracker and then reach out to each of your facilities and ask them for their FEI number, which is the FDA Establishment Identifier. That's the key information you need to be able to start your product listings. In some cases, manufacturers already have an FEI because to get an FEI, you don't actually need to wait for the MOCRA FDA Cosmetics Direct Portal to open. Brands and manufacturers that manufacture were able to get that before the portal open on a different FDA system. So map everything out, reach out to your manufacturers, get that FEI number, and then you can start to prepare your listings for submission to FDA. Great information. Thank you so much, Cam, for really stepping through the details of that. What are you seeing? Is the MOCRA piece of this the last piece of this, the July 1 date, or are there more pieces to MOCRA? Are we waiting for more information for additional regulations within this legislation? Yes, we are. So in June of 2024, the FDA will publish their rulemaking on fragrance allergens. So at the moment in the US, you do not need to label your fragrance allergens on the inky. In the EU and UK, you do. So if you're already labeling them on your inky for the US, it's likely you will already be compliant. But the one unknown is we don't know if the FDA will ask for labeling of the existing allergens or if they will include the new EU regulation, which includes the extended allergens. This is a list of around 80 substances compared to 24. So that's the one unknown, which we don't have, and we hope we will hope to have that in June. Another key part of MOCRA, which hasn't been published yet either, is the rule on GMP, so good manufacturing practice. There will be a standard that manufacturers will need to adhere to. Again, it's not known which standard it will be. In the EU and UK, the standard is ISO 22716, but it's not known yet whether MOCRA will follow that same standard it would make sense too, because MOCRA is trying to align with the EU, it seems. They're using the same terminology, such as a responsible person. They're doing notifications, such as a product listing. So things are mirroring. So I, I hope it's 22716. Otherwise, all manufacturers would have to go through another certification process. So they're the two, I'd say they're the two main areas. There will be some rules in the future on talc and PFAS but those are not coming out until 2025. 
So more to come on those, but there are still elements of MOCRA which are still being worked through. I hope there is more FDA guidance just on every element of MOCRA because at the moment we don't have too much. But understandably, the FDA is still trying to figure out this regulation and how they're actually going to enforce it and produce the guidance for that. So it is a lot of work for a very small team with a very small budget. I think that's an excellent point. And my big takeaway from this is that it is an ongoing evolution. And so as a brand, as a manufacturer, having the right information, having the right if it's a regulatory or legal team that you can reach out to and make sure that you are staying on top of what's due and when, and then also what's coming so that as you look to place new POs or make more product, whatever it may be that you have the latest of what could be coming and to be able to adjust because it sounds like every six months or so, we're expecting to get more FDA information as it relates to cosmetic products and MOCRA. So really appreciate, Cam, your knowledge in this subject and then stepping us through what it really means as brand owners and founders. I'm glad to be here and I hope it helps brands and manufacturers as well to really figure out their responsibilities And also, hopefully, it makes the information more manageable. I know when a regulation is published, you just see reams and reams of text, which you're looking at thinking, how the hell am I going to get my head around this? But hopefully, it's broken down into somewhat simpler terms through this podcast. I love it. Cam, if our listeners want to reach out and speak with you directly, how can they best get a hold of you? Yes. So my Instagram handle is at the cosmetic regulator. Otherwise, drop me an email on hello at the cosmetic regulator.com. I'm super responsive on, on both. So a DM, an email, and visit my website if you want to hear more about my services, what I can offer. That's www.thecosmeticregulator.com. Well, thank you so much, Cam. I look forward to continuing conversations with you. I'm sure we probably will ask you back as we head into the end of this year because there will be more updates and having this information is so vital to the success and profitability of brands. So appreciate the time and the information and I wish you the absolute best in your new role as founder. And I really am excited to continue to work with you and understand these changes. So thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me on the podcast. And I hope everyone enjoys listening to it as well. Well, thank you for listening. And if you want to continue buzzing with me, head on over to buzzbeauty.com. This has been Beauty Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>